Section 47 of Flowers of Free Thought, First Series. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Fournier, Marshall, Virginia, USA. Flowers of Free Thought by George William Foote. Section 47. Miracles. What is a miracle? Some people would reply, an act of God. But this definition is far too wide. In the theistic sense, it would include everything that happens. And in the sense of our archaic bills of lading, it would include fire and shipwreck. Others would reply, a miracle is a wonder. But this definition would include every new, or at least every surprising, new fact. A black swan would have been a wonder before Australia was discovered, but it would have been no miracle. Railways, telegraphs, telephones, electric light, and even gaslight would be wonders to savages, yet neither are they miracles. One of the Mahdi's followers was astonished by an English officer who pulled out his false eye, tossed it in the air, caught it, and replaced it, after which he asked the flabbergasted Arab, whether his miraculous Mahdi could do that. It was a greater wonder than the Mahdi could perform. Still, it was not a miracle. Ice was so great a wonder to the king of Siam that he refused to credit its existence. Yet it was not miraculous, but a natural product, existing in practically unlimited quantities in the polar regions. We might multiply these illustrations ad infinitum, but what we have given will suffice. If not, let the reader spend an evening at Maskeline and Cook's, where he will see plenty of startling wonders, and not a miracle amongst them. Hume's definition of a miracle as a violation of a law of nature is the best ever given, and it really is as perfect as such a definition can be. It has been carped at by Christian scribblers and criticized by superior theologians like Mosley, but, to use Mr. Gladstone's phrase, it keeps the field. Even the criticisms of Mill and Huxley leave its merit unimpaired. The ground taken by these is that to say a miracle is a violation of a law of nature is to prejudge the question, and to rule out all future facts in the interests of a prepossession. Mill, however, allows that a miracle is a violation of a valid induction, and as a law of nature means nothing more, it is difficult to understand why he takes any exception to Hume's statement of the case. It is perfectly obvious that Hume's argument is not metaphysical, but practical. He does not discuss the possibility, but the probability of miracles. He reduces the dispute to a single point, namely, whether the person who relates a miracle, for to the world at large the question is necessarily one of testimony, is deceived or deceiving, or whether the otherwise universal experience of mankind is to be disbelieved. In other words, whether he or the rest of the world is mistaken. One man may, of course, be right, and all the human race opposed to him wrong, but time will settle the difference between them. That time, however, simply means general experience through long ages, and that is precisely the tribunal which Hume's argument appeals to. Quarreling with Hume's definition is really giving up miracles altogether. For, except as supernatural evidence, 
they are no more important than shooting stars. The very nature of a miracle, in whatever formula it may be expressed, is superhuman, and having a purpose, it is also supernatural. In other words, it is a special manifestation of divine power for a particular object. Whether, being so, it is a violation, a contravention, or a suspension of the laws of nature, is a mere question about words. We may say that a miracle has three elements. It is first a fact, unaccountable by science. Secondly, it requires a conscious agent. And thirdly, it results from the exercise of a power which that agent does not naturally possess. Let us descend to illustration. Huxley takes the following case. Suppose the greatest physiologist in Europe alleged that he had seen a centaur, a fabulous animal, half man and half horse. The presumption would be that he was laboring under hallucination. But if he persisted in the statement, he would have to submit to the most rigorous criticism by his scientific colleagues before it could be believed. And everybody would feel sure beforehand that he would never pass through the ordeal successfully. The common experience, and therefore the common sense, of society would be dead against him, and probably he would be refused the honor of examination even by the most fervid believers in ancient miracles. But after all, the centaur, even if it existed, would not be a miracle, but a monstrosity. It does not contain the three elements we have indicated. Real miracles would be of a different character. Plenty may be found in the Bible, and we may make a selection to illustrate our argument. Jesus Christ was once at a marriage feast, when the wine ran short, which was perhaps no uncommon occurrence. Being of a benevolent turn of mind, and anxious that the guest should remember the occasion, he turned a large quantity of cold water into fermented juice of the grape. Now, water contains oxygen and hydrogen in definite proportions, and nothing else, while wine contains, in addition to these, carbon and other elements, being, in fact, a very complex liquid. Jesus Christ must, therefore, in turning water into wine, have created something, and that transcends human power. Here, then, we have a complete miracle, according to Hume's definition and our own theory. We do not say the miracle never occurred, although we no more believe in it than we believe the moon is made of green cheese. We are willing to regard it as susceptible of proof, but does the proof exist? To answer this, we must inquire what kind of proof is necessary. An extraordinary story should be supported by extraordinary evidence. It requires the concurrent and overwhelming testimony of eyewitnesses. We must be persuaded that there is no collusion between them, that none of them has anything to gain by deception, that they had no previous tendency to expect such a thing, and that it was practically impossible that they could be deluded. Now, let any man or any Christian seriously ask himself whether the evidence for Jesus Christ's miracle is of this character. Four evangelists write his life, and only one mentions the occurrence. Even he was certainly not an eyewitness, nor does he pretend to be, and the weight of evidence is against his gospel having been written till long after the first disciples of Jesus were dead. But even if the writer distinctly declared himself an eyewitness, and if it were undeniable that he lived on the spot at the time, his single unsupported testimony would be absurdly inadequate to establish the truth of the miracle, 
Every reader will at once see that the established rules of evidence are not conformed to, and whoever accepts the miracle must eke out reason with faith. So much for the evidence of miracles. Their intellectual or moral value is simply nil. The greatest miracle could not really convince a man of what his reason condemned. And if a prophet could turn water into wine, it would not necessarily follow that all he said was true. In fact, truth does not require the support of miracles. It flourishes better without their assistance. Universal history shows that miracles have always been employed to support falsehood and fraud, to promote superstition, and to enhance the profit and power of priests. End of section 47